You're listening to The Bomb Girls Beacon, a podcast dedicated to the television show Bomb Girls. I'm your host, Chris. And I'm Annie. And I'm Stephanie. And just as a spoiler warning, we will be discussing the first two seasons of the series. So there will be spoilers from the first two seasons of the television show. There is a movie set to be released on March 27th, but we are recording this podcast before that has aired. So there should be no spoilers from the film. And just for our little history tidbit, the biggest contribution that Canadian women made during the war was through unpaid volunteer work. So even though the show focuses on women in the workforce, it's not really representative of the whole of society at the time. And we're talking about Gladys Witham for this episode. So for Gladys, we thought a drink of the time that would be appropriate for her is a Kier Royale. And it is made with champagne and creme de cassis, which is a liqueur which is made from black currant. So it has sort of a berry type of flavor to it. They're actually quite good. They, they are still a popular drink and you can, you can get them nowadays, but they're, they're quite tasty. And our extremely astute friend Sally sent us an email saying that Gladys represents class stratification during that time period. Before the war, things were pretty rigid and the upper class didn't mix much with the working class. As well, women had very strict roles that they were expected to fulfill and conform to, especially upper class women. Gladys shows that when she is adept at hostessing a dinner party that her father needs her to attend, she sparkles, she makes conversation, puts the guests at ease, asks them about themselves. High society women were expected to help their families or husbands in business not by having business sense or intelligence, but by having social skills. Most business, after all, is based on personal connections and personal relationships. And I had to include that whole thing because Sally is brilliant and very, very accurate, I thought. Yes, as always. Yeah, definitely we see for Gladys where women are supposed to really excel in, in life is being this little social butterfly type of person to charm people and talk to people and make sure that they have a good time at these parties being hosted by their, the male, the significant male in their life. But we see for, for Gladys that that isn't really enough for her. That's not where she finds fulfillment. Right. And I think it's important to acknowledge that it is an important role to play, mm-hmm. but I think it's also one of those things like it just it it is confining for Gladys. It's not Gladys doesn't want to limit herself to that. Yeah, it's not a, a bad role to play in life, but it's just not a role that fits well for Gladys. Right. You can see that from the very beginning when in the pilot episode, James says to her, oh, go try some champagne. Go ahead and just drink champagne. Look, you're here to look pretty on my arm. Certainly that's her mother Adele's impression of that's the only thing they sh- she should do and her father's as well you know good good little toy on the man's arm and we're going to get married and it'll make for good business but that's it that's all you're supposed to do is just be put in a box and that's your role during the war that's how you're the most helpful but what impressed me so much about Gladys from the beginning is that she always had intentions to do more than just work in the office at Vic Mew and wanted to work on the line. Well, and that's that's actually a common trope that you see in television and film is this idea of the non-idle rich. So even though somebody is wealthy and they don't need to do traditional work, they still feel like that's an important part of sort of being a human being and contributing to society is having sort of an average job that people do. So Gladys is a good example of this trope, this idea of the non-idle rich. Of course, I think what's sort of interesting that Bomb Girls does is that the fact that she is non-idle rich sets her at odds both with her family and with her co-workers. Yes, because you have your fam- her family who's upset she's working, and then her co-workers who are upset she's working because she's rich and she doesn't need to. Right. There's this sort of sort of feeling that she doesn't belong there. She's She's not one of us. Yeah, she's not one of the girls. She's not one of the gang. Uh, you see Lorna asked the girls early in the series, well, do you think Miss Witham is one of you? And all the girls just kind of, there's dead silence. And they just, you know, you can very much tell from their expressions. They're like, oh, hell no. So that's early on in the series when Gladys has yet to break through to all the girls on the factory line and really get to know them as friends. And they start to trust her more. Right. And... Further into the series, you know, Clifford Perry has the line, you move well between worlds, which, you know, she she does get to that point where she is comfortable and accepted, more or less, at least, in in both social circles. But I would say 
Perry maybe in that in that moment isn't acknowledging the fact that Gladys really had to work for that. That's not something so that she had to sort of naturally. She developed sort of the mindset and the and understanding for working class women and men through her job. And that's why she moves well between worlds. I'm not saying that like he's suggesting that, but that line in and of itself doesn't recognize that that's really a skill that Gladys had to kind of hone and develop. Right. And I think that's sort of reflective of one of the main features of Gladys's character is that she really does seem to try to understand the perspective of other people. Yes. Yeah. And she has to fight for it every step of the way. She always has to explain herself or justify herself. Uh, like when she's trying to justify to James in the, in the pilot, this is why I have to go and fill Vera's place on the line because you don't understand what these women are risking. And he's like, you should just be safe in the office. And she's like, no, this is what I want to do. I feel like I'm meant to do more. And to me, that really made me impressed with Gladys from the beginning, the whole, you know, working rich concept at the beginning, that she was a feisty character. She didn't just take her father's comments or her mother's comments lying down. She always, again, had to fight back with them, and she made her stand, both with, you know, trying to befriend the girls in the workplace and against her parents' expectations of this is all you should do is just get married to James and, you know, be happy with that. Right. She really wanted to get her hands dirty. Yeah, literally. So speaking of her parents, she has a really strained relationship with her mother, especially. I think both parents, but it's it's played out more in the series with her mother, I'd say. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that her brother died. That really seemed to affect her mother really strongly. I'm sure it affected all of them, but there is a point, I believe in the second season where her father makes the comment about her mother basically being depressed and it happens kind of this time of year, insinuating that perhaps Lawrence had died sometime around this time. And, and so it really, that I think was a big wedge in their relationship and, and Gladys feeling like she can't live up to maybe this shining example of her brother. Right. And it seems like there's at least one part in there after James has died where it sort of sounds like her mother has relapsed into her depression. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. 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 And that her mother considered James a surrogate son for Lawrence. And to me, it, it's really hard. It's good that you explain it that way and that you that's how Adele expressed her grief by being very cold towards Gladys because she can't ever, you know, have her son back or James back, but she doesn't know, you know, quite what to do with it. So on the outside, she, to me, it seems like she never softens towards Gladys. She's always a B-I-T-C-H, you know? And her father, with her father, Gladys, you know, I think eventually it comes to more of an understanding with her work at Vic Mew, but her mother is just, she doesn't know any other way to be, so she'll be very stiff and cold and you know, almost resentful that, you know, well, I can't have a son when I still have a daughter who just bucks authority and makes it harder for me. Well, you know, I can't be like me and follow the rules. I'd say the relationship between them sort of fluctuates, though, because there's one episode towards the end of the second season, and Gladys is moving out of her parents' house. Again. <laughs> right. And there's the whole exchange because her, her mother is vehemently against it and is sort of pleading with Gladys's father to make her not go. And Gladys says to her mother something along the lines of, I think she tells her where she'll be. And she says, I'm, I'm only a phone call away. And then they, they hug. I think that whole scene is revealing about Adele's mindset because Again, this whole idea that she's lost her son, so maybe she's holding on to Gladys so tightly because she doesn't want to lose another child. Well, and I also think that James's death brings them together in a way. Even though they went through Lawrence's death together, it's it's quite different to lose a son versus to lose a brother. It's it's a different experience. So I so I kind of feel like James's death gives them a a place to bond because 
there's not that competition between Gladys and James the way that there maybe was between Gladys and Lawrence. So I don't know. That's just my, my impression that maybe they were able to come to a, a better understanding through their mutual grief over James. But maybe that's just me. <laughs> Possible. But I, I think actually where the tension between Gladys and her mother comes from is possibly the fact that Gladys does want to work, that she doesn't want to be the sort of high society woman that her mother is. Because even if Gladys doesn't intend it in this way, I could see Gladys's mother taking Gladys's attitude toward the role she's been raised to play as a slight to her, like say her Gladys saying that her life isn't fulfilling, her life isn't good enough. And so it makes sense to me that that might be a big source of tension between the two of them, not just the fact that Gladys is doing something her mother doesn't want to do, but there's kind of this implied Gladys doesn't think that her mother's life is very good. I think Sally had actually mentioned in her email that she sort of, and to me, this is maybe a little out of left field, but not beyond the realm of possibility that perhaps Adele was maybe a little resentful towards Gladys because Adele wanted to live a more adventurous life. It's possible. I don't really get that sense from Adele, but it's not impossible. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Annie, thoughts? No, no, you guys said it all. So, but yeah, I, I could see that last possibility because it, it's passed down from generation to generation. The wealth, the expectation, this is how you should, you know, act. This is who you should marry. At least I think that's the impression I got from their family. So to see Gladys be such a kind of out of left field and act the way she does and kind of pretty much get away with it. Maybe Adele's longing for that kind of, as you say, adventurous kind of spirit and to be able to act on it and to do something besides dinner parties. But she doesn't get to. So I believe the relationship between Gladys and her father, Rolly, is perhaps less fraught than her relationship with her mother, but it's still it's still a sort of tense relationship. Because her father also wants her to be the proper, quote-unquote, proper daughter and, you know, wife and all this sort of thing. And he says to her, you're an attractive girl with an equally attractive income for the man who marries you. And so and this is part of the scene where Gladys, I think, refers to herself as his heir. And he, he sort of calls that into question. He's like, oh, you consider yourself my heir, do you? And of course, these days, that seems kind of ridiculous that he's even asking this. But again, it's sort of the whole loss of Lawrence and the loss of James playing out there. I gotta say, I don't quite understand why Gladys's relationship with her father improves so significantly in the second season. Because he seems really strict and married to this idea of Gladys being a particular way in the first season. But in the second season, their relationship really does get a lot better. You know, he allows her to control, I think, it, the interest on her trust, and he's more supportive of her. Right, that's actually right after this mm -hmm. exchange. Exactly, and he's more supportive of her working at the factory, and I don't quite understand why it gets so much better in the second season. Thoughts? Well, do you feel like maybe some time had passed and, and some scenes were maybe missing in between season one and two, where, you know, the first scene we have of Gladys in season two is the photo shoot for Vic Mew, and her dad seems willing to go along with it. This is the way that we can support the war effort. And, you know, she says, well, I'm going to go to my shift. And he's like, he's, he's more accepting of it, as opposed to when he found out that she was working in the factory and went on the floor and could have potentially blown up everybody, just, you know, smacking his fist on random bombs and stuff like that. But I love how Gladys still say stays defiant to him, because I thought in that scene she was just going to go, okay, Daddy, and go home with him, but she didn't. And, um, yeah, I mean, I feel like maybe, who knows, there could have been some off-screen discussion or they could have come to an understanding in between season one and two. Well, that that is a good point. I do think that Rolly becomes more accepting of her working in the factory because he sees the profitability in it. 
he puts her picture on the can and they have a, a working girl who's in the war effort. So I think there's definitely some of that going on where it's a business move in order to, to let, to let Gladys continue working in the factory. But there's other pieces of their relationship that I don't quite understand why they improve quite as much as they do. I think they said two or three months passes between the first season and the second season. Right. And I, I think maybe, I mean, this is just me speculating, but it could be that Rolly really sees that he doesn't want to lose another child. Possibly. Yeah. Well, definitely that seemed to be a big reason why they were so opposed to Gladys working in the factory in the first season was that they had had a son who died already and they were worried to have their daughter in such a dangerous environment and lose her as well. Right. But I think maybe he realized that they would have lost her in a different way if they'd continued to ah. oppose True. Oppose her working there. Yeah, maybe Rolly realized it or came to terms with it in a different way than Adele did or sooner than she did. But it's kind of ironic because what if the factory blew up and she was in the office? She's in a dangerous place anyway, ironically. So, But she would have just been maimed instead of killed if she'd exactly. been in the office. <laughs> just, maimed, just maimed with a thousand nails or something. But, I mean, I actually did like seeing the change with Rolly in the second season because I felt like the tension couldn't go on much longer between him and Gladys where he's slapping her in the first season and and, um, you know, just to see that both of the parents be so harsh and so unyielding, I think it's, it's good character development, it's good writing, but even if we don't understand all the, all the, if, even if we don't see all the scenes unfolding, or if there seems to be a little bit of a leap in logic for it, but, um, I really enjoyed seeing their relationship get a little, I think a little bit softer, is how I would describe it in the second season. They're able to talk easier and come to an easier understanding. Yeah, they do seem to communicate more and perhaps more openly in the second season. I think a, an, a big piece of Gladys's personality is that Gladys is a real champion of causes, especially champion of the underdog. And a lot of her storyline is her having a very idealistic view of of the world, of how you know, how people's lives should work, how society should work. And she keeps kind of getting reality checks on, no, that's not actually how things do work through her contact with the, the women and men who work in the factory. But it's sort of interesting because all of those reality checks never actually stop her. It's true. She, she remains optimistic and undeterred. Yes. That's what I like about her character. Again, that she's, she still sticks, sticks her neck out and sticks up to her father and still supports the working girls and, you know, puts everything on the line for them, puts all her financial trust on the line for them at the end. And, yeah, that she's not a cardboard cutout of the rich girl. And I really like that. But do you think maybe she has that idealistic perspective from the beginning because of how she was raised? Like, oh, everybody has this. Oh, I'm sure she does. Wealth and opportunity and enough to eat, etc. So that was partially coming from her background. I think absolutely. She, while Gladys recognizes that she's privileged, I don't think she quite understands all of the privileges that she has as somebody with her, her income. She doesn't understand that even though there are laws in place that do protect most people, if you're an Italian during this war, if you're this type of person during this war, those aren't extended to you. I don't think she quite understands that aspect of her privilege. So I think definitely her background is is a reason why she's so idealistic. Yeah. Or if you're a poor working class woman during this war, or just a woman who doesn't have the protection of anybody, yeah, you don't have an advantage if you go to jail. So, But it's so fascinating because rather than shrug her shoulders and walk away, she's like, okay, how can I extend my privilege to you? Yeah, how can I help? She's always asking that. I, I think a really good example of this is in the first season with the the hat box. So in the episode where they've had a bomb, a bad bomb that exploded, and the, you know, that Mr. Akins is looking to fire one of the workers and Gladys is trying to get the other women riled up to give suggestions and this and that and the other. And the women are too worried about losing their job to actually speak up and give their probably pretty good suggestions. And so 
when that doesn't work, Gladys, you know, she brings in the hat box for the suggestions. And I wish that Gladys knew that Lorna did give those to Mr. Akins, that her, her idea sort of had follow through, because I think she feels like it didn't work. But I think it, mm-hmm. it, it was, it maybe not have been ultimately successful, but I think it worked better than she actually got a sense of. Well, and the whole thing started off because they were, I think, in the locker rooms mm-hmm. or, or somewhere. They were, they were already throwing out things that they wish could be improved or, or suggestions on how to improve things. Talking mm-hmm. about, you know, the light's all wonky when I'm pouring the amatol and I'm not always sure I'm filling them up correctly or, um, the fumes or whatever and how it's making them all tired and they don't get proper breaks. And, right. And then Mr. Akins comes in and says, what are you guys talking about? Okay, you all need to take the test again. Uh, otherwise you're canned. And Gladys is like, come on, girls, weren't you just talking about these suggestions? And they're like, in front of Mr. Akins, no, we don't know what you're talking about. And then he leaves. And she goes, what was up with that? And then they point out once again, here's the class difference. Mm-hmm. You don't risk losing your job. You don't li- risk losing being the only breadwinner for your family and for your kids if, you know, you speak up. We do. This is the difference between you and I. Right. But yeah, yeah, you're, you're right, Stephanie. I, I do wish that she could have known that Lorna actually followed up on it. Mm-hmm. But wouldn't have she have kind of known or kind of it, it, she would have kind of figured it out because weren't some of the suggestions put into action eventually or not? Not that I saw. Okay. I, I was curious. So yeah, I, I do really ap- appreciate about Gladys in that episode that she doesn't give up on her idea that women's voices in the factory needs to be heard. She takes Kate's advice to heart that she can't just be Joan of Arc and come in there and be the savior. So she tries to give the women an avenue to submit their suggestions anonymously. I like that she's a problem solver. She keeps at her end goal. She doesn't get discouraged. Yes, that's an excellent way of putting it. And yeah, and we see her at another point collecting money for the Red Cross. And of course, her initial plan is to go take a collection bucket to the jewel box, which doesn't really pan out that well. So yeah, people donate, but they don't have a lot of money to donate. So they only end up with like a couple of bucks of donations. Right. So then there's, I don't remember, Does it was it her father that actually came up with the party to raise money? Or was it Gladys's idea? It was Gladys's idea, but it came out of a conversation with her mother and father basically saying, that's not how you raise real money. And she comes up with the idea of, oh, we should throw a party because mom does that all the time. And she's really good at it and things like that. So I think it's really Gladys's idea, but it is inspired by her parents' comments. Okay. But then it's really interesting how in that party, she says to her friends, oh, come to a party, you know, a real party, come dress up, and that's what they think. But then they're like, no, you got to put on the overalls and take contributions and be on this side of the house, not with the real partiers. So they, her, you know, her friends feel like they've been duped. And again, it's the, she has to walk very delicately between both worlds to hopefully keep her friendships with the girls in Vic Mew, but also keep her parents happy with how she contributes and how she how she behaves in that setting. You know, she can't be seen as one of the girls. She has to be seen as the hostess. But she has to keep her Vic Mew friends in line, so to speak. Although she does take her mother to task for treating her friends as servants. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I, th- I think her friends know they're not going to be regular party goers when they show up. But I think where she's not explicit was that she gets to be a regular party goer. She gets to wear her fancy dress and go and sip, sip champagne with, with the other people. But the her friends have to work. Right. Although, don't you get the sense that Gladys would have rather... She would have, yeah. ...been exactly like one of, the, yeah. one of her friends. So, yeah. Like, she Again, felt bad appearing in front of her friends in her fancy dress and said, I'm sorry, this is the only way I was able to do this. Yeah, again, it's it's this whole idea of Gladys sort of having to live in both worlds. She she can't be in one or the other, you know? Mm-hmm. Not without fully severing ties one way or the other. And then I, I like how that storyline concludes with Gladys very sneakily 
committing her family to giving a very large donation to the Red Cross and giving it to pay for medical supplies so the money won't just go back to her father when the Red Cross buys food from his grocery business. So I was like, yeah, Gladys, way to go. (laughs) Again, she's a problem solver. Yep. (laughs) Take that, family. Yeah, and even how she keeps pushing James and her father to not make bad quality food. She's going, this is dog food, literally. Um, well, it wasn't the food that was bad. It was the, yeah, the, the can packaging. Yeah. yeah. Oh, the packaging. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. the, the, the okay. cans weren't making the food, weren't sealing correctly on a certain percentage of them, and so the food was spoiling. So, yeah, that's another good good example of Gladys being an idealist and a crusader for what's right is when she wouldn't give up on them increasing the thickness of the seal so that the food wouldn't spoil. Yeah, even if it costs more money. So another example of where we see Gladys being a real crusader for the underdog is with Marco in the second season when she learns that his father's in Petawawa and he hasn't had a a, a hearing and they don't know when he's going to be released. She uses her connection with her uncle in order to get him a hearing. Right, and it's not not just that he's been in there that long, but I think they hadn't even seen him Mm-mm. The whole time he'd been there, so years or so yeah. So she not only arranges for the hearing, but well, she doesn't really arrange for Marker and his mother to go see them, but she does eventually help him help them. She t- uses their her car to go take him to Petawawa. Yeah, Marco kind of guilt trips her into mm-hmm. it. Though actually, I she... was kind of surprised in that scene that she didn't offer when he says, "I don't have a car." He kind of has to talk her into taking them there. I don't know. I felt like Gladys maybe would should have been a little more. Well, I can take you. Well, I think Gladys was concerned because basically she skipped work to do it. True, true. Because, I mean, the, I mean, obviously Gladys's whole storyline revolves around getting and keeping this job. So, you know, clearly it's important to her. So I think that's really where it, where the um, hesitation comes in. But yeah, I was a little surprised too that she didn't just offer or have a solution already for it. Well, the part that really got me about that scene is that how she still continues to use her connections when, you know, Marco, when Marco discovers that they're being recorded, gets into a fight and gets detained himself. And the guard says to Gladys and Marco's mother, you know, you guys have better be careful because we're not above putting a woman in prison. And Gladys says, you wouldn't dare imprison me. And it's where she uses her, you know, clout to go. Well, I'm a woman of society. You can't do this to me because, you know, I have connections. And I think it's one of the few times where Gladys kind of talks that way. But again, it's for a greater good just to say, well, jeez, oh, I just lost my train of thought. Um, well, she was being threatened with wrongful imprisonment, so. Yeah. But, um, but it's also, I think, a good moment where Gladys is reminded of her difference in privilege because mm-hmm. the guard then says, I'm not talking about you. He was talking yeah. about keeping Mrs. Moretti. And when yeah. Gladys realizes, oh, she doesn't have the same type of class privilege, the same type of connections mm-hmm. that I do, she would be stuck in here that she realizes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Gladys realizes, like, as hard as she tries sometimes, her clout and her privilege can protect her, but it can't always protect her friends. Yeah. Like, she can only get them so far. But she wishes she could, you know, do everything for everybody. But again, the reality is not always that she can. But yeah, that brings up another good point about Gladys is Gladys stands up for herself. And I mean, this is a a point in time and society and all that sort of thing where basically you couldn't always do that. If you're a woman, especially. Right. I mean, it wasn't, that's what I'm, what I mean. It wasn't acceptable necessarily, but it doesn't stop her. Well, I'm wondering why it's so fascinating to me to always see Gladys as the one who stands up as a woman. And I'm wondering where this kind of plucky courage came from when she grew up in very high society and with money and with wealth, didn't want for anything. And yet she always looks outside the norm, looks outside her box that she's been placed in by her mother and her father of this is who will marry and just have a happy life and go and crochet or knit and go and do, you know, the meals for volunteer, go and volunteer to do meals and work in the office. But 
she has a personality that just doesn't seem to fit within her social norms. And I'm wondering where that came from, considering how kind of square her mother and father are. But maybe it developed after Lawrence died. I don't know. So to me, that's always kind of fascinating. Well, but I mean, it's not like she didn't want to marry James. I think, you know, she really loved James. So I wouldn't say that it's being dictated by her parents. Mm-hmm. I think it's partially just Gladys's personality. We see in other arenas that Gladys is very adventurous. She wants to meet different people and have really different experiences. And her life was not allowing her to have that. So I think that's that's part of it is just who Gladys is as a person and, and wanting to experience things that are outside of her immediate knowledge of the world. Yeah. But the fact that she's even aware of that in the first place is amazing to me. Whereas, I think, Chris, you and I were talking about this briefly, Carol just seems to be like, oh, I just want what Gladys wants, because she's kind of like a lower tier. She's, she's. I think Carol comes from good society and doesn't want for anything, but we were, Chris, we were saying, she's like a lower tier level of rich, and she just wants to be Gladys and be in that position and have a good husband and just work in the office, but but stay very confined within the way she thinks and the way she acts. So, whereas Gladys always wants more than what she has uh, in terms of society and in terms of uh, empowering other people around her. Yeah, I mean, we really don't know much about Carol's family situation, but the impression that they give is that Carol wants to be where Gladys is, societally speaking. Yeah, I get that impression, too. While while Carol has money and she's not a working class gal like the other women in the factory, she doesn't have quite the social standing that Gladys does, and she aspires to that social standing. But I I do think Andy might have, have a point that perhaps Lawrence's death added to Gladys's sort of pluck and courage, because it, it could be when her brother died, her parents were involved in other things and maybe didn't pay as much attention to her. And so she developed a, a greater sense of independence through that. But that's just me kind of speculating. I don't know for sure. Yeah. Well, in similar speculation, we don't know what her family itself looked like when Lawrence was still alive, since, again, the implication seems to be that Adele is suffering from some some form of depression since Lawrence's died. So mm-hmm. we don't really know what Adele was like when he was still alive. Maybe maybe the family as a whole was more adventurous and fun. And I mean Gladys of course would have been younger then too. So of course there's stuff that you you know you might take your kids on some elaborate family vacation or something. I don't know. Which might have instilled some form of adventurous nature in Gladys. I mean we don't know. This is me wildly speculating. <laughs> yeah. But I, I like that Gladys, even though something I'd, I'd appreciate about Gladys is that even though she comes from this very uptight world of, you know, this is what a proper person looks like. This is what a improper person looks like. That doesn't really register for Gladys. She seems to be a very accepting, very tolerant, very loving person. Like she figures out that Betty likes Kate. She figures out that Betty has a thing for women and that doesn't really deter her. And, and she is really willing to talk to people who are very different from her. And she's excited by the idea of meeting people who are different from her. What's the line when she's hanging out with Russell Joseph? About how her mother told her never to Date a man with two first names? No, no. after she she spends the evening hanging out with him and his friends, James comes to pick her up because she's super, super drunk. And she's like, oh, it's I I spent the evening with, or I met Bohemians. Wasn't that what it was? It was something like that. Or something like that. (laughs) Yeah. And I also like when when Betty and Kate and she go to the jazz club where Leon's playing for the first time where she talks about how Betty has such hep friends. (laughs) Yes. Where Betty's like, what are you talking about? What does that mean? (laughs) (laughs) The rich girl here is calling me a weird (laughs) name, saying weird stuff. (laughs) But and and speaking of of Kate and Betty, she also Gladys also crusades for them at the at the end of the second season when they've been arrested when she puts up bail for them. Which I mean, that's like going above and beyond as a friend, right? Yeah. But I guess if you can. But to me, that also says how much she thinks of them as friends. 
And it's not just her, to, at least that was the impression that I got, that it's not just Gladys being the fixer again. Um, but to me, it was like she's really developed a relationship and really cares about these women now. But then also my other reaction was like, oh, crap, what's going to happen when her father finds out what she did with her money? Maybe we'll find out when the movie airs. Yeah, he will not be too happy. But yes, speaking of Kate and Betty and Gladys, and this is a side note, but I'm bringing it up anyway. The scene at the end of 201, like, how great is that scene where they're all lying on Betty's bed and not saying anything, just passing a cigarette between the three of them? (laughs) I do really like that moment. It's a good moment. All the girls. I don't remember which episode it's in, but I also really like the, there's an end of one episode where they're all just dancing in the the hallway of the rooming house where, where Kate and Betty live. And I also really like that ending too, to an episode for the three of them. Mm-hmm. I do love that the show itself revolves so much around that friendship, especially. I mean, friendship among all of them, but I think that's really the core friendship of the show. Yeah. Yeah. And it, and beyond that, I, I think the friendship between Gladys and Betty is really a bedrock to the show. Mm-hmm. So we all love the, the friendship that Gladys has with the different women on the factory floor. But personally, and I, and I think this is at least true for Chris as well, we do not understand the romantic choices that Gladys makes most of the time. No, that would be true for me as well. Okay. So none of us really understand Gladys's romantic decisions. I do kind of like James. I think, I think that's true for a lot of James I like because he understands her to a point. You know, he doesn't like her working on the factory floor, but he'll let her do it. And he has that moment where he's drunk and shooting and can't. he says he can't hit anything and he confesses to her how scared he is to go over and fight. But they have really sweet moments between the two of them where they really confide in one another. And again, he gives her leeway. He's not as strict as her parents. He really does love her. I think they really love each other. And, you know, when he asks, will you take my car before he goes overseas? There there are such a lot of, I think, again, really intimate moments between them where you can see they have a genuine affection for her. And he's not like a typical, I think, it potentially could be really overbearing husband of that day and age. Uh, you're going to do this and, you know, just fit into your little corner and don't say or don't do anything. Well, and you and I both know Gladys isn't going to put up with that. Yeah, but he, really, he, he potentially could have been, that character could have been written, but wasn't. Again, he's not a good character either, so I like that about him. So I like that relationship and how it develops. Yeah, I, I think James really is surprisingly supportive most of the time. Yeah, and sweet most of the time. So what I really appreciate about James and Gladys's relationship, which which Annie was kind of getting at, is that we see James being fairly progressive for a man of this era. I think he reacts sort of appropriately, given that it's, you know, 1940s, when he finds out that Gladys is working in the factory. And I don't always like what James says, but at the same time, it feels genuine to the era. If James was like this completely progressive man and he had no problems with it, it wouldn't quite feel real to me, I don't think. Yeah, and it is one of those things, I think they do a good job of showing that at least some of the concern, both from James and from Gladys's parents, it is about her own safety. You know, it's not purely, we don't want you working, it's, we don't want anything to happen to you. Right. (laughs) Which is, you know, it's, it's an understandable reaction. Right. So we have we have with Gladys and James sort of dealing with the fact that Gladys doesn't want to be this traditional woman. And James seems to be pretty okay with that generally. Like I don't think that he necessarily expects Gladys to be exactly like her mother and to just occupy this really specific sphere. And so we we see them negotiating their relationship beyond the fact that Gladys is rejecting these traditional gender roles. And then I like that we also see similarly for James we see him through his conversations with Gladys confronting his feelings around not quite feeling like a, like a man, like where he talks about the fact that people don't know he's American when he's in Canada. And so they see him not in uniform and they think he's a coward and how that's really difficult for him and how that sort of challenges his masculinity. And then when he enters the war and he goes through training and he's no good at shooting and he feels like he's not really fit to lead again he that you know they have this nice conversation around him not quite feeling 
like he can live up to the expectations that men have of this time. So I like that they use their relationship to talk about gender roles a bit. Right. And I think he also expresses some concern that he's not going to live up to her expectations mm-hmm. because yeah, that's right. Gladys, of course, is such a patriot and she is so enthusiastic about the war effort and everything. And so I think it's understandable that James is worried about that mm-hmm. aspect of it because, you know, you want this and I don't know if I can be that. Right. So, But I, I do really like that they use their relationship to explore those expectations for both men and women in that time period. So I actually do really like her relationship with James. It's her subsequent relationships (laughs) that I don't really understand. (laughs) And and the fact that they start when she's still technically with James, again, you can kind of understand why they're separated and everything spatially, (laughs) geographically. That's the word I'm looking for. Geographically, they're, they're separated but then Jean Corbett comes back, and they start up this weird thing, and I still can't quite figure out why exactly she lets him get anywhere with his flirtation. I don't understand it. The only thing I can really think of is that Jean was clearly kind of a... a off-limits to her in a way, she because you had Mrs. Corbett basically saying, you know, stay away from my son. He was a very sort of happy-go-lucky, want-to-have-fun type of guy. And I think he was a bit of an adventurer to Gladys. And we we do see her otherwise being a person who kind of craves adventure. And so I think that's partially why she does it. But I agree. The first, Especially the first time I watched the series, she's very resistant to him at first. And then is kind of like charmed by him singing and they start dating. And so... <laughs> It didn't quite really flow for me upon first viewing. I understood it a little better on subsequent viewings. What's with those things? Like, is it the whole wounded puppy aspect of it? Is that, that what it is? That was my thinking, because do you think she is the one who helps want to talk him off the roof, right? And it's like, do you think she realizes that under all his bravado and all that crap that he's really got PTSD issues and that she feels sorry for him. And plus with the fact that James is off and she wants to just be adventurous and take care, again, take care of somebody, see if she can help somebody. Okay. I'll just do it with Jean. So it's kind of a combination of his issues plus her, her issues. I don't know. Cause we saw in the first season, it's not like Gladys is exactly focused when it comes to men. <laughs> you know, she yeah. has a really early dalliance with, with, what's his name? Lewis, the soldier, the airman, Lewis. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. you know, we see her like dancing with other soldiers and, and things like that. So it's not like she's just, Oh, I'm committed to James and he's the only person mm-hmm. I can look at who has a penis, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, dancing is one thing, but. But what she and Lewis were doing was something else. Yes, that is something else. <laughs> However, I must say, we didn't really talk about this. That is an aspect of Gladys's character that I really like, is I like that Gladys is horny. Because, <laughs> like, the first shot we see of Gladys is her reaching her hands down James's pants. They're making out, and she's reaching her hands down James's pants. And because I think... He's the one stopper. Yeah. Yeah. Like, why can't we now that we're engaged? Yeah, because I think that we are encouraged to think of, of, you know, women who were in their 20s in the 1940s to be, you know, very proper and probably not all that experienced or interested in sex. And I like that immediately social strata. And I like that immediately the show challenges us in that regard. Be like, no, they totally wanted to have sex just as much as, you know, 20 year old women do now. (laughs) Yeah. I believe that was one of your first text messages to me when you started the show was like, I like that the show starts off with a woman sticking her hand down a guy's pants. Yep. Exactly. <laughs> I was like, this is one of the stranger messages I've ever gotten. <laughs> well, here's my question about that first episode, too, is do you think she and Lewis did it? No, she says later it was just some making out and petting, which petting okay. usually means over the clothes, yeah. groping. So they did not actually have sex. But then the camera pants, you know, they go out of frame. And I'm all, did they? So, yeah, I had to wonder about that. But then there's the whole thing with Lewis in the first episode, which I think she kind of does almost because she, you know, she feels sorry for him. And again, she wants to fix, fix him or give him something to hang on to. But I think maybe she does it as a reaction to what 
Vera tells her, going, maybe if I do like do this, I'll be more like one of the girls. Just accept proposals willy-nilly. Even if it goes against her her own morals of being engaged to James. Well, I think she does definitely consider what Vera says in regards to her patriotism, because as we see, Gladys is a very patriotic individual. And I think maybe she thinks about that's like, well, is this patriotic? Me accepting men's proposals. Uh, but I also think it's partially born out of sexual frustration. You know, this it begins with her being rebuked by James and saying, no, let's wait. And I think she's very curious and uses Lewis as an opportunity to get a little bit more of, a, of an education, as it were. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But then this is what I like about James is that he eventually finds out about that and still accepts her. And they still are able to make up and have a relationship. Well, James has no room to talk. Yeah, no kidding. He, as, as Gladys says, you had a full-blown sexual affair. <laughs> With Hazel McDougal. Yes. Darn it. Yes. But, you know, I, again, I thought that whole makeup scene between James and Gladys and the way it was done was, was mature of both of them and their past dalliances, that they still remain loyal to one another. Total side note, I always love the uh, scenes in James's apartments. For some reason, that's a great set. Anyway, go on. But yeah, Gene Corbett, kind of a kind of a mystery to me. The only thing I can really... I never liked her, so... <laughs> the only thing I can really think of what draws, draws her to him is, I guess partially because he's a war hero, you know, as we see Gladys very much idealizes men who are overseas or have been overseas. But I, I also think he, she sees him as sort of an adventurer, and that's that's what draws her to him. I buy that. But then Clifford Perry. Clifford Perry. What? Indeed. Why? Why? <laughs> Why? Why? Question mark, question mark, question mark. Even more than Gene. Why? Because to me, Clifford Perry is the most underdeveloped character in the whole series. The thing, the thing that I find funny when Clifford Perry first comes on the scene is her friends are kind of suggesting that, oh, you know, you're going to start dating that guy. And, and she says something to the effect of, well, he's over 40. Like clearly he's this really old guy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, that always, that always makes me chuckle. But yeah, Clifford Perry, I don't understand exactly why they had to start dating. I I was more fine with them being sort of business colleagues, and I don't quite understand why she decides to have kind of a fling with him. Well, and at this point, it's like yet another relationship for Gladys. You know, was she over the loss of James that soon? And it feels like this character is doing this spinning wheel of uh, wounded men that she has to, that she is always karmically attracted to or has in her life. So to me, it just that was the most unrealistic of relationships that she's had. Part of what annoys me about the fling she has with Clifford Perry is the timing of it. Because they'd had sort of a a flirtation, I guess, that had been going on. There was a will they or won't they aspect to it, where, you know, they sort of went between being really annoyed with each other and, and being, again, flirty and friendly. But then... In this particular episode, he becomes kind of a huge jerk mm-hmm. and huh. rips her dress accidentally, but still he gets mad enough that he rips her dress, right? Mm-hmm. And then immediately, of course, goes back to apologetic and tells her he'll fix it. And apparently him telling her he'll fix it with his sewing skills, apparently that's how you seduce Gladys. Yeah, that's a big part of apparently, is sewing. So. Mental note. <laughs> but that, that bothers me, though, that it's after that. You know what I mean? Yeah. After him being a huge jerk to her, even if he thinks he has reasons for being a huge jerk to her. Uh, yeah, that bothers me, too. Because, yeah, huge jerk and then, like, huge attitude swing in the other direction, which apparently worked on her. But still, I, I just I was still like, no, Gladys, don't. <laughs> Yeah, this one I can't really chalk up to Gladys just wanting to have sex. <laughs> well, that and he has this whole scene, I think, later where he's revealing why he's the way he is. And he's, again, the walking wounded. And, you know, it, it just didn't work for me, writing-wise. It just, uh, I don't know. I'm like, I don't, why? I don't really feel for this character. It's like, get another one? But yeah, it looks like... 
it looks like the character is going to come back. Clifford Perry, that is, is going to come back in the movie. So I'm curious to see how their relationship stands. Well, my, I mean, and again, I just, I, I don't want the whole half of the movie to be between the, the Clifford and Gladys relationship. I'm like, no, where's my McAndrew? So I, I hope the half, half of the whole movie isn't around that. So. But they're apparently introducing another man for Gladys. I know, and I'm like, what the F? I think Gladys needs to be single for a while. That's just my two cents. I agree. (laughs) (sighs) But yeah, so the for Gladys, her her storyline is set up to be going into spy training, I guess, uh, at the end of of this second season, and I'm it sounds like that's where they're going to pick up with the with the movie is that she is going through her spy training. So I I am curious to see where how exactly she's going to be utilized in that regard. Mhm. I'm curious to see how they will use her as a spy in the movie because it made sense that she would be an appealing candidate given the fact that she worked in the in the factory, but I'm curious if they'll have her move out of the factory at all in regards to being a spy. I hope not, because that's where the shit, where, you know, the whole idea is based, but. And why are the two green? As Stephanie just wants to know why the turbans are green in the movie. So, in regards to the men in Gladys's life, if they were going to have Gladys have uh, another fling with somebody who is not James, I kind of wish that they had kept Kai Lo around, who's the, the Chinese American soldier that we see toward the beginning of, of season two. I believe he's in the first episode of season two. And I thought that was a really interesting rapport between the two of them. And I would have loved to have seen more of him. I would have also liked to have had that. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying they should have had Gladys date him, but I definitely would have liked to have seen more of Kylo. Well, that and more of a chance to have an Asian American character in there, you know, Italian characters and to kind of more accu- accurately reflect uh, all the different nationalities the war involved and all the different people who are fighting the war for their different reasons. So. Yeah, I did like their interactions in that episode. And it really was sort of, as we've talked about, I mean, it's it's Gladys being a little oblivious at first and, and assuming things incorrectly <laughs> and and being put in her place, kind of. And just, I mean, she was okay with it. You know what I mean? Like, she was very apologetic and accepting and it was it was the beginning of an interesting friendship and i'd i'd like to see more of that if they ever hashtag save bomb girls (laughs) so yeah we would have loved to have seen more kai lo i don't know that it's in the cards for his character to come back at all but we would have loved to have seen more of kai lo in season two especially and you can tell us your thoughts about gladys or about this episode in several ways you can leave a comment on the show notes or leave us an ask at thebombgirlsbeacon.tumblr.com. You can email us at bombgirls at drinksatthedoll, D-A-L, dot com. You can leave us a voicemail at 972-514-7223. And for updates on the podcast, you can follow me on Twitter at Chris Jen, K-R-I-S-G-E-N. I'm your host, Chris. And I'm Annie. And I'm Stephanie. And we'll see you next shift.